This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the hub of all things, what exactly the hub of all things is, why you shouldn't be alarmed to hear that it will make corporations out of everyone, and how digitization is changing the way we buy and use products and services. Irene C.L. Ung joins us on this week's podcast to discuss those topics and more. Irene is the director of the International Institute for Product and Service Innovation at WMG, University of Warwick. She's published numerous articles in the domain of management, marketing, engineering, information systems, economics, education, and sociology. And she's the author of two books, The Pricing and Revenue Management of Services, A Strategic Approach, and the highly acclaimed Value and Worth, Creating New Markets in the Digital Economy, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Irene. I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today talking a little bit about an acronym you call HAT, short for Hub of All Things. What is the idea behind Hub of All Things and what can you tell us about it? Well, the HAT, which we fondly like to call it, um, which of course lends ourselves to all sorts of uh, memes and jokes about it, um, (laughs) essentially embodies a central idea. Um, um, The idea is that there's a lot of our data held by corporations everywhere. And there is a reason why they hold it, because they own the technology and, of course, they own it, the data. And there have been all kinds of good things that have come out from these data. We've got better coupons because of how we buy stuff in supermarket. You know, all all sorts of things have come out of this data. But there's now a lot of our data out there. And to be honest, we really should be able to have access to it so that we can make use of it. We can hopefully buy apps to analyze it and um, buy apps to make our um, health better, well-being better. I mean, if everybody's collecting about us, never mind the aspect of privacy, but if we was returned to us in some way or given the access rights to us, we could do much, much more with us with it than even corporations can't. So that's essentially the the thinking behind the hat. And also the other part about the hat is that if we had computational ability to analyze our data, we we could do much more. Now, if you look at the corporations out there, most firms have lots of information systems capability. They have inventory, we, they have um, logistics and processes and ways to optimize the processes and uh, the company. And if you look at as individuals, we don't have very much, but we need it and we want it. And the, the smartphone has shown how much 
empowerment you can give to a person once you have uh, the ability to take the smarts into yourself. And if we had the data back to ourselves, then we could be smarter, we could be better with our decisions, we could be better recalling, we could be better with our memory, we could be better with our analysis. All kinds of things could be made better for individuals if we had that capability. And the capability is there. So let's build it and let's call it the hat and let's give it to everybody. So in a recent blog post, you wrote about hat making corporations out of everyone. So typically that might sound a little bit sinister, but not in the context that you describe it in the blog post. What do you mean when you talk about making corporations out of everyone? So that if, if you think about our, our society today, mm-hmm. we have political and legal framework to deal with firms and corporations. You know, when Foursquare shares data with Facebook, even though it's my data, there is a legal framework and there are processes and then there's technology, APIs, contracts, privacy, security, what you, what, what we share, what is the contract about. And there's all kinds of relationship between corporations. But when it comes to individuals, we are this banker term called citizens, consumers, society. There isn't a, a relationship, a, a corporate or even a legal framework to govern the relationship between me and a corporation. But if just imagine if we then said, well, you know what? What if I became a corporation? Would you know how to contract with me? Yes, yes, they would. Um, can I be able to buy services from you? Yes, they can. And that's what we mean by corporatizing a person. It's not that we're going to make you into a firm, but we make a pseudo proxy you that is an external facing towards the economy. And because of that, we can reap the benefits of an economy that have lots and lots of cool innovation services for businesses but not for consumers. And that's what we mean. And by doing that, we have legal frameworks that then can protect us under those contractual terms. Currently, we don't. Right, and also give you more control, I would imagine, over what exactly you decide to share with people as opposed to putting that control in the hands of other corporations. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if Amazon is going to be contracting with a retailer like Borders, there is a going to be, that's going to be a quite a good contract. Borders will say that certain things about my data. Amazon will say certain things about their data and that relationship and how the data flows and everything. We don't have that with individuals, but with a hat and you become as kind of server, you can have a relationship that is understood within that legal framework in terms of data sharing, in terms of what you're contractually obligated to do and not do. Yeah. So it's a, it's a bit of a shortcut for a world that currently has no legal framework for personal data. Okay, nice. So let me ask you about service and service innovation. One of our previous guests, Dr. Timothy Chow, has been on the podcast a few times to talk about cloud computing, the Internet of Things, and a number of related topics that I think probably tie in with what you're doing with the hub of all things. And one point that Dr. Chow has hammered home is that service is the delivery of information that is personal and relevant to you. So would you agree with that definition and or would you add anything to it? Um, 
to to uh, to some extent i do because i think the personalization is a very important part of service but i don't like the word deliver mm-hmm. because i don't think a service can be delivered in a way a product a physical product can be sort of sent or given to you i think a service needs to be um like a, a handshake it has to be co-created and so i would probably do a slight modification to that definition and say service is a co-created is co-created and personalized in terms of the information um, that comes and goes from me and yes i think that is very much what the definition is but in terms of how it applies to the current world well almost everything that can be a service now is becoming a service I mean, we saw this trend um, back in the 90s when banks started to become not just um, physical banks, but into the computer, into the internet space, and then now into the mobile space. They can now, you can co-create the service of a bank by using your own ability to um, take whatever service or whatever outcome you want from a bank using a few keystrokes on your phone but yes i think that that definition is um sort of about there sure and and let me ask about uh something you you mentioned in the last answer personalization so there are an awful lot of people in the world and the number grows every day do you think it's too much to ask of the universe that technology have the ability to serve up information that's personal and relevant to each and every one of the seven billion people on the planet Oh, absolutely. And there is already empirical evidence of that. Right. And um, and the evidence of that is in your smartphone. I mean, if you look at the iPhone 6S, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you, I can make two statements now, and they will be absolutely true, but absolutely contradictory. Every iPhone 6S in the world is identical. Every iPhone 6S in the world is unique. How do you make sense of that? That is possible because the market of one is possible. And that is because the part that is standardized is the physical part and the part that is completely personalized is the social and the cyber part. When you combine social, cyber, physical products, uh, goods and services, you get a market of one and full standardization to make it viable. It is not a coincidence that Apple now is the largest company in the world. When you get the benefits of scale, as well as full personalization, this is what you get. It's the holy grail for every company. Yeah, and and one that hopefully uh, the hub of all things will continue to help enable. Well, well, this is exactly where we want to go um, and widen it up to an economy of all other firms. If, If I walked into a shoe shop today, I'll have to physically try on quite a number of shoes. If I walked into a future shoe shop where it not just have my size, but also uh, the distance in micromillimeters between my foot and the shoe and which shoes I wore and what colors I had and a whole set of data that perhaps is a standardized set of data for a shoe shop that knows how to use algorithms to match that data with whatever shoe that they think would be a good recommendation to me. That's what personal data can do. Matching. Uh, that that is um, 
the fiance of someone who loves shoes, the, the thought of that scares me very much. <laughs> okay, let, let, let's not go shoes. Let's think about diet. Let's think about the groceries you buy. And that things about everything, uh, everything about your lifestyle that could be matched with what you could buy. I mean, why is it that when we buy clothes, we are still... Uh, well, okay, fundamentally, why is it that when we want to search for something, it's us typing something in a little text box in Google? That's crazy. That's technologically ridiculous. Why is it not a little button that says, match what I have in my wardrobe to what I should be buying from the new season of Lagerfeld that has just come out? Mm-hmm. I mean, why is that not possible? It, it is possible. The technology is there. But it isn't there in a way that human beings, us as individuals, we do not have that capability to store, to analyze, and to present and exchange our data for, for goods and services. Hopefully, when the hat starts rolling out, this will all change. Yeah, and I think that seg- that segues nicely into the next question. Um In your latest book, Value and Worth, Creating New Markets in the Digital Economy, one of the main things that you look at is how digitization is changing the way we buy and use products and services and how the digital economy is rapidly changing all of that. So in addition to the the shoe and wardrobe example you just gave, do you have any other examples you can think of where people can look to see those changes taking place? Well, I think... um a, sim- a simple example is to look at music. Mm-hmm. You know, music used to be quite physical. You know, you, you had to sit in a room. Uh, we had vinyl records that became CDs and you had to put it in a little box and then listen to music. Um, and today we have music in context, on demand, on the go. If right now, while I'm talking to you, we're thinking, oh, we'd really like to listen and we were arguing about the lyrics of a Led Zeppelin song, we will have that resolved within 30 seconds. On demand, on YouTube. If to, right now I wanted to listen and I heard a piece of music from a, from a radio, I wanted to know what that song is, I can shazam it. And that is the reason, that's what digitization does. It basically melts or what we call liquefies a part of a physical thing like vinyl or CD. It liquefies the information bit into a whole lot of digits and then it can fly. It flies into your phone, into exactly where you are sitting here in your room, in my room, and gives me a market and choices on what to buy. Now, if that were to happen to a physical world, it was possible to liquefy Earl Grey tea I'll have one right now <laughs> on in context and on demand, but I can't. And so, so think about what, what, pro, what goods and services can and what can't that could be liquefied in some way that the information becomes valuable outside of the physical and can interact outside of the physical and create interesting new market boundaries where we've never had them before. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, Speaking of liquef- of liquefying things, we've had guests in the past where we've talked about 3D printing and, you know, I, I haven't checked up on it of late, but there was talk of doing things like 3D printing pizzas. I don't know exactly how that works and it seems like counterintuitive. Oh, and- 
<laughs> but that, that's you're spot on. Um, that is exactly why 3D printing is huge. And it's because while we can have a cyber layer for the iPhone, you can't really liquefy something that is physical, you know, like a pizza. But 3D printing, if organized in a way that it meets the point of need, can be quite powerful. And we are already say, seeing that in, in well, I have a PhD student that, that looks at 3D printing of component parts on vehicles and they can be printed everywhere uh, whenever something breaks down. Yeah. So, so let me ask you about another technology that's been getting a lot of press of late, the Internet of Things. It's something that you touch on in the book quite a bit. Do you think the kind of revolution it could hold is so radical that people will have to experience it before they can fully understand the possibilities? Yes and no. Okay. Um, so if you look at the music example mm-hmm. and radio and television, I mean, you're probably not around when TV first came out and neither was I. Well, I was really very young. I don't think I was around actually. Right. But... If you look at the history of what was being broadcast when TV first came around, it's hilarious. Um, the first TV broadcast was a bunch of people in that box um, talking because they could only do an extension of a radio onto TV. <laughs> <laughs> That's all they could think of because the idea of TV hasn't yet quite hit them. Mm-hmm. that they are moving pictures. It's like, you know, when someone's taking a photo and, and somebody then says to you and everybody gets together and someone says to you, it's a video, guys, and you go, oh, okay, so so I can move? Or, I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it, it's like that when radio went to TV. There was, uh, It started with a whole bunch of people just sitting in the box and, and reading and talking. And then it became, well, it's become Jurassic Park. It's become everything. Right. And it's the same with the web. When the web first started, what was it? It was just a whole internet world of brochures. Because that's what we knew, brochures. Oh, it's the internet. This is the way we can give out brochures now, can't we? <laughs> so every website was a brochure, remember? Right. And then, and now today, we have, oh my God, we have everything on the internet. Web 2.0, we've got all kinds of interactions possible, online live chats. and you, So you take that dimensionality of that new channel and medium into a, an absolute way of co-creating a service and outcome that people haven't thought of before. Now, the internet is just about to jump out of the box now. You know, we've lived with the box of the internet for 20 over years. Now it's about to come out into the physical domain of connecting between people and things and cattle and appliances. Now, what's the possibility of that? Well, I'll tell you what what it will start with. (laughs) It will start with behaving like it's the World Wide Web of things and people. And so there will be some very early start of things that that are not very fancy and not amazing. That's the reason why everybody seems to be fixated on using a phone and I could switch on the light. Wow! Yes. <laughs> because our brain would naturally extend. That's, that's the point of innovation. Incremental innovation is so much easier. We can tell what the boundaries are. We can just extend that. But the medium, when it settles, 
starts to create a whole new dynamic in terms of what is possible for the future. And we haven't even started to see what it can generate. We started just barely 10, 15 years ago playing snake on the Nokia phone to the smartphone today. Think about what it is today and what it would be in about 10 years' time. The possibilities are amazing in terms of what can materialize, dematerialize, liquefy, and move. But fundamentally, it's about need. And human beings need to do certain things with their lives. And if you make those things possible, then I will buy it. And so the market will exist only if it fulfills that need. I mean, why are cameras being such a big thing right now? It's because if you put a camera in your house and you can see it when you're away, it's presence. It fulfills the need of me not being able to monitor my house when I'm away. I've always wanted to do that because I worry about certain things about the house. And now here comes the technology that's able to do that. Yeah. So even though it's going to be way out and crazy in terms of the possibilities on the Internet of Things, fundamentally it isn't crazy because it, it helps human beings live their lives in a more richer and perhaps a more efficient and optimized way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I am excited about some of the possibilities. And also, like you talk about, I, I think it will be nice once we can get beyond like, okay, yes, your refrigerator, we'll talk to your toaster, we'll talk to your coffee oh, yeah, machine. Yeah, yeah. You've got to get past that first. <laughs> <laughs> So you write, Irene, in the introduction to the book that it's not so much a, quote, how-to-do book, but a how-to-think book. How would you recommend that listeners think about the intersection of technology and innovation? I think um, there is a fundamental misunderstanding to think about technology, innovation, and human lives as uh, being separable. It, it isn't separable. Um, there is an old saying that says, we fear technology that was invented after we're born. And we are not fearful of that fridge, even though there's a hell of a lot of Freon in my house. Because for some reason, the fridge is not scary anymore. Because it was invented after we were born. And for the kids of the future, you know, the iPads technology isn't scary, but it will always be scary if it was invented after you're born. And what I'm trying to say is that a rock is a technology once you are able to use it to etch something on a wall. It's technology. It is Technology is just an advanced assistance that amplify our capability. It's no different. An exoskeleton attached to your leg is no different from a, a, a nice pair of shoes. I'm sorry, I keep going back to shoes, but, you know, it's no different from a nice pair of shoes that enhances my legs. A nice pair of shoes is a piece of technology. It's a technology that is, of course, about, you know, shoes, but it's also about looking good and amplifying and augmenting the self. So if we start thinking about technology as an augmentation of the self, we can think better about innovation in the future. I think most people start with technology as that of not being personal to them, when it is. 
And if it is not personal, then it's pers- then it's technology that you fail to internalize. That means it's not a great innovation to you. And you are entitled to not think of it as a great innovation as well. I mean, that's why I'd like you know to think about technology really in terms of what it does as augmentation, not what it is separated from what we are. Okay, so Irene, you're the director of the International Institute for Product and Service Innovation at WMG University of Warwick. That's quite a mouthful, but can you tell us a little bit about the the product and service innovation department at WMG? Well, WMG is uh, was started by my boss back in the 80s, and it is a department within the University of Warwick, but it's a very unique academic department. Um, we are multidisciplinary in the sense that I came from a business school, but now I am in WMG in the research that I do, which is about economic and business models and value. But I have behavioral economists working with me. I have cybersecurity people working with me, engineers, 3D printing specialists, uh, robotics, uh, propulsion, materials, all sorts of technology and social science disciplines within WMG. And we're quite a large department. Uh, we're running into seven, 800 people now. Um, and what we love about it is that as an academic department, a full-fledged academic department in the university, we can be multidisciplinary and yet participate in publishing good papers in our own disciplines. And that is quite rare. And the reason we're able to do that is because we like to think ourselves as end-to-end in terms of generating knowledge and also creating impact. So we work with a large number of organizations um, in generating and creating impact for society and for firms and also write quite a bit of papers within our disciplinary area. So um, that's what we think is great about my department and also about innovation that you can actually uh, talk about. And we, we have this four four things that we do that I usually summarize in four words. And that is uh, thinking, tinkering, telling, and tooling. So we, we, we think, and that's the thought leadership part of it. And, and that's the reason why a lot of my book is about how to think about certain things. We have the uh, tinkering, which is the actual research that needs to be done, the data to be collected and analyzed. We have telling, we, we published, whether it's uh, pub, um, white papers, executive briefings, or whether it's uh, um, academic journal papers. And finally, we take great pride in tooling, which is we build stuff. We create, a, we build stuff with companies in the, on the hat, for example. We will be building the hat and it will be rolling out through our company uh, collaborators um, globally. Okay. And you've talked a lot about consumers and how they can and how they can employ HAT. What about companies? How can they use it to further their innovation efforts? Oh, I mean, this the HAT is going to be really big for companies because here is finally a repository of data that's controlled by the individuals, and they have ways that they can give it to you, exchange it with you for cool apps and cool services. So I talked a little bit about personalization of, say, buying shoes, for example, but there could be so many more personalizations. I mean, if there was a shopping basket app, 
the person could just use the shopping basket and you, as a company, you could make an app to match what's in the shopping basket with what could be bought out there. And there could be all sorts of ways that you can exchange and, and ask for the data, properly ask for the data, and then based on that data, provide services to visualize, to analyze, to recommend, and also be an intermediary with other large companies in terms of um, bundling their services to personalize it to on the hat for, for individuals. So the ad is very much an exchange platform, multi-sided exchange platform that should benefit firms uh, hugely so that new jobs are created and individuals so that they are they are in control and empowered with their own data. And that's very much the mission of the hat. And I, I would imagine, you know, retail and, and e-commerce would be, you know, one industry that you would focus on. Are there other industries or verticals where you see it making a big impact? Huge. I mean, health, health and well-being is a big part. I mean, imagine if you're cycling and and you suddenly had a heart attack and you've, you've got a hat then and you had an ICE um, module, which is so in case of emergency. And your doctor will straight away know what you ate for lunch and what you did the last hour and that could save your life and that's the health bit and also well-being being able to you know not just the quantitative self-movement but be able to do so much more on the well-being side in terms of your exercise and um, your your nutrition so health but also transportation imagine your own google calendar where you want to go and what the weather might be like for the whole day and what the traffic might like might be like for the next three hours you could uh, crowdsource that data um as company and give back recommendation as to on routes not based on what it is now but what it is in the next two three hours because i will be happy to share my next three hours plans with you if you could tell me what the, the traffic might be like. So transportation, home, retail, all of that. I mean, all verticals, I think, will be hugely um, impacted by, by the hat. Yeah, I would, I would love to see some self-packing bags based on the, uh, the weather of, of where it will be in, uh, I don't know, let's just, let's say Paris. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think once we empower with our own data, a lot of things can really fly in terms of the creativity of apps. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's bring it full circle and talk about the tooling of the hat. Can you tell us, uh, it's going to be unveiled to a small subset of people in September. What can you tell us about that and where should listeners go if they want to keep up with what's happening at the hub of all things, aka hat? Right. Um, we uh, There are two hat platform providers that have been that signed up already. So um, just imagine the hat is like your email. You've got the Gmail and Hotmail versions and the hat will have providers worldwide. Um, the UK one is Enable ID. You can go to enableid.com. The Singapore one is nogginasia.com and, and the Singapore and UK hats will probably roll up first. We're in discussion in f- with several countries about be- their hat provisions. Um, in September, Alpha comes out, the Alpha version. So that will be a small community of 200 to 1,000 people to test out uh, the hat. Um, in October, November, we will probably launch a full-scale Kickstarter program and a full-scale revolution of reclaiming back your data on Kickstarter. So um, it really would be very useful if you follow us closely on hubofallthings.com and that's where you can sign up and get all the information. And when we launch the Kickstarter campaign to sign up so that you can get 
your hat because it's not that you'll get a hat at the end of Kickstarter campaign. You actually get a choice of at least two or three hat platform providers to provide you with a hat at the end of the Kickstarter campaign. So that's where you go when you want to get your data back, start the data revolution and have your own hat. Okay, nice. Well, certainly something that should resonate with a lot of people in an era when uh, privacy is of utmost importance. Irene, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great talking with you about the hub of all things, again, also known as HAT, and what it holds for the future. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. Our pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Irene Ung, you can follow her on Twitter at, at @IreneCLNG. If you'd like to learn more about the Hub of All Things project, you can visit its website at hubofallthings.com to learn more and register for your very own hat. Thanks once again to Irene Ung for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have my three-pillar colleague Chris Graham joining us to talk about disruptive innovation and media and entertainment. We'll be looking at how media companies are dealing with the advent of live streaming, the future of how you and I will consume media, and what that means for companies across verticals, and much more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.